and welcome to DTX Equals, where thought leaders in digital therapeutics put a stake in the ground about what makes DTX, DTX. Joining me today is Jenna Carl, Chief Medical Officer at Big Health. I first met Jenna um, at a meeting of the Digital Therapeutics Alliance when we were both uh, running research organizations in our respective companies. I was at Twill at the time. Uh, and it's been such a pleasure to just follow our respective career journeys together. So excited to talk to you now um, as the Chief Medical Officer there. And uh, welcome. Thanks, Acacia. Great to see you. Thanks for inviting me to chat. So before we dive into talking about some of the meteor topics about DTX in particular, um, we want to hear a little bit about you. So tell me, what's a formative event in your life or career that has influenced your path in DTX? So what comes to mind for me is that when I was doing a lot of clinical practice uh, early on, and I was providing cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a psychologist, and that is uh, uh, my intervention of choice, uh, typically, for um, most mental health conditions. I just uh, I kept getting patients calling me and uh, coming into my practice who had for decades struggled from a common mental health condition, say, panic disorder or uh, generalized anxiety disorder, OCD, uh, depression for decades. And they had never been offered a behavioral intervention and they'd never recovered from their condition. And so ultimately these conditions have been chronic. And the, and you know, within weeks providing the right intervention for these folks, the right behavioral intervention, the, they were able to recover. And like, it was, they were like blown away. I mean, they all were entirely skeptical that they could get better. And it was just that in all the years that they'd suffered and sought help, no one had ever offered them the evidence-based behavioral intervention for their condition. They'd been provided all types of other interventions, traditional medicine, alternative medicine, but they'd never been actually provided what's one of the first line treatments for their condition. And so for me, like, it was just, you know, it's just remarkable, like day in, day out, people, people with mental health conditions are not getting the right care. And so, you know, I was incredibly motivated to find a way to make sure that that wasn't going to continue to be the case, you know, to make sure people were going to be able to get access to uh, behavioral evidence-based interventions. I mean, that's so powerful, right? Because like you, you can see literature that talks about how long it takes from onset to diagnosis. And in some disorders, 10 years, right? People are just walking around and they don't even know they have it. And then once they finally get diagnosed, they're not even getting the right care necessarily. That's a huge gap. I feel that. That's, uh, that's very powerful. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we would, you know, I worked at the Center for Anxiety and Related Disorders in Boston where we would treat panic disorder in a week with our intensive treatment. And the number of people that have had panic disorder for 10 and 20 years, it's, I mean, it's, it, it, it's just not right. It's just not right. Tell me a little bit about the first DTX product or digital health product other than your own that made you say, whoa. Awesome. Yeah, so uh, I think for me, the one that uh, evoked that reaction uh, was something I actually learned about at a, a DTX conference. And I think it was the first time I saw the MedRhythms uh, founder present on their product and how it worked. And ultimately, uh, for those of you that don't know, that is leveraging um, music and the rhythm of music uh, along with biofeedback to facilitate recovery from stroke. 
um, help people like learn to walk again. And, you know, it's just uh, really the clinical science behind it is like what's so powerful. But I think the elegance that you're using something as uh, as as natural uh, and common as music um, to facilitate that recovery. Um, So that would yeah, that's one that comes to mind. Absolutely. Super cool. All kinds of stuff with music going on in the space right now to try and leverage that, which is is cool, right? Because it's already part of people's everyday lives. And if there's one thing we've seen in DTX, it's that if you try and create something new that people aren't familiar with, that aren't already uh, kind of a part of things, it's much harder to get that real world adaptation or adoption. So I agree. That's a super cool area. Um, Second rapid fire question. In your wildest dreams, what is something that DTX will be able to do in the future? And that could be technologically or evidence-wise that it can't do today. Yeah, it's a great, great question. Uh, I mean, so there's going to be a million things, of course. But uh, I think that uh, the depth of personalization uh, is going to be what really drives, like, you know, just massive increases in uh, in performance for DTX. And so uh, I would say that that means like actually personalization going back to the genetic level. Uh, and so when we re- actually are able to kind of map uh, our, uh, you know, our interventions to people's like differences in genetic loading, genetic risk, uh, and then have that continue to adapt smart in a smart way, uh, to ongoing data feed that we get from people. I think that ultimately is going to be where we start to deliver just like incredibly impactful interventions for all kinds of things, like whether it's, uh, you know, uh, physical health, chronic health conditions, whether it's mental health. Um, I think all of, all of those are going to benefit from that kind of the, that level of, uh, data driven, uh, personalized, uh, intervention. Right. And there's a lot there, too, because there's the actual collection of the data, right? We can't tell anybody anything about their data if we don't have it. And so logistically getting that data is a challenge I see a lot of digital health companies dealing with. Do I send them a several hundred dollar kit? Do we ask the consumer to pay for it? So there's also the the, the logistics of it from uh, physically getting it, but also paying for it. Then once you have the data, there's actually knowing what to do with the data and how to leverage it to make the personalized suggestions. So a long way to go there for sure. Uh, but I, I do think that's a thing that a, a lot of companies are, are trying to work on and it's a, it's a tough one. Um, and, and maybe it's maybe the next part's related, maybe it's not, but um, this is the question that we'll dive into, right? Like really spend some time on. So for you, DTX equals what? Like what's the most important issue in DTX today? Um, and what's the kind of thing uh, that def- defines DTX? And it can be an area for growth, but um, you know, what's the thing that, that DTX means to you the most um, that we should be doubling down on? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, you know, so if you, as people talk about the, the, uh, the challenges uh, that we're working through with distribution of DTX, like on broad scale, our adoption, reimbursement and regulation, <laughs> right? Just all the things. <laughs> Well, um, yeah, and we're trying uh, to we're trying to get this to people, but like uh, the whole point is access, right? Like access is the point of DTX. I mean, absolutely, right? yeah. Well, well, right, yeah. Uh, access because we believe it's a it's a novel form of intervention that has you know really superior safety profile, generally speaking, uh, and therefore there's a huge um, kind of gap it's filling in in uh, treatments for a variety of conditions where there's just 
the alternatives are really only medi- medication. Talk to me about superior safety profile, right? So that's actually like them's fighting words um, in the sense that, you know, I've had some um, uh, some look at the companies trying to treat depression or, or anxiety or other clinical um, clinical conditions that I know big health touches on a lot. And um, the general sentiment is that compared to being under the care of a doctor, that a digital product can't monitor safety as well um, or is more distanced from the user than an in-person care provider could be. So talk to me a bit about the idea of digital yeah. products having a superior safety profile. Oh, I'm so glad you, yeah, you raised that and you frame it that way. Cause well, so I, I don't think that digital treatments can, you know, should be provided without, uh, you know, the appropriate provider supervision or oversight, right? Now that depends on the therapeutic, you know, I'm speaking generically about digital therapeutics and so when I say that digital therapeutics have a superior safety profile um, than medication on average, what I'm talking about is the fact that they're behavioral-driven interventions, uh, typically non-invasive. And so that just generally speaking, there are lower safety risks. But, you know, but like for any given condition, that doesn't mean that there isn't, a, like there, you know, a certain amount of provider oversight that's needed. Um you know, or again, like, you know, it's hard, like take depression, for example, because I think talking in the abstract is difficult. Uh, you could think about like around uh, this experience of having depression, there are specific aspects of uh, diagnosis and treatment and care oversight that need that uh, experience, uh, you know, licensed provider oversight. And then there's parts of it that are just are really safe and can be sort of more self-administered. And so I think it's about thinking about it at that level, like which, you know, which points of care, which parts of care are, does the, do risk surface, uh, does risk surface and how do you mitigate that? Uh, so it's like uh, going to be, you know, it's going to have to be a very nuanced, sophisticated uh, plan for any, in, you know, for any condition area, for any ther- therapeutic um, but, uh, I, but ultimately I just, that's still, I think you're still more manageable than more invasive, uh, types of treatment. Kind of undebatable is that you know, compared to taking a medication, which may have side effects, which may need a lot of monitoring that something digital that's behavioral is, or even therapy for that matter, right? In-person therapy has a, a better safety profile from that sense. Um, you know, I, I'll, this is like a, uh, a thing I've been thinking about for a long time, actually, because I do think it's it's easy for us in um, DTX to say, of course, like we're not trying to replace in-person care and we're not, right? But to say, of course, you know, the monitoring that a, uh, in-person care provides is important and always should be there. But I got to tell you, I've received in-person care. I've, received, you know, received psychiatric care for a mental health condition. They wouldn't know if I were suicidal. How would they know? I see them every three months. So, you know, on one hand, I do think um, nowhere are we trying to replace important pieces of in-person care that protect safety. But I also wonder, and I wonder what you think about it, um, whether there is a bit of reverence for in-person care that's not deserved um, when it comes to safety monitoring. Yeah, I, I wholly agree. And uh, we're, I mean, we're both clinicians, right? So, uh, I think we can, uh, I think we can speak from, from that standpoint as well, where I, it's, I, there, 
there, there's the risk of just leaning on uh, credentialing uh, as a way of um, sort of, you know, uh, feeling like uh, reducing liability and uh, that, you know, a provider, well, if a provider, a provider uh, you know, doesn't detect something, then like, then, you know, that's, they don't detect it and that's all we could have done. Um, but as you, as you just say, like there's many, uh, there's many limitations of in-person care. And so I would agree that like, it's really about when that's actually another huge area that I think we're really, is still really untapped with digital therapeutics is how do we actually support providers with our digital diagnostic tools, digital interventions to uh, ensure that we're surfacing the right inter information to them at the right time. That's where it's not too much. It's not all the time because we know that they just, they can't they can't possibly pay attention. But it's those it's the actual data points that they need to make smart uh, clinical decisions. And so, uh, you know, like the data shows that providers are are really um, I, I I think not very I was going to say no better than chance, but that's probably not true. But but you know not um, not great at predicting future risk of harm. And like, that's an area where, you know, with uh, good uh, algorithms that we're kind of building over time, we could get much better at identifying, uh, you know, like identifying when someone is at risk of harm. And if we can surface that to a provider, uh, you know, in a way that's actionable, then that starts to become like helpful. Um, so, yeah, I think we'll, we'll do better together. But it's, uh, it's, it's, it's what you're talking about is like, you know, safety, safety is hard to manage in person. It's hard to manage. Um, well, and so is provider workflow, right? So like one of the hugest themes at DTX East um, last fall was that, uh, you know, companies are building products and then finding out too far down the line that providers will never use them. It doesn't fit in their workflow. It doesn't give them information at the right time, like all these mismatches, right? So we know that that intersection between what providers want and reasonably can use given their current workflow is not necessarily intersecting with digital products. And so if we keep ourselves to safety, um, that's a really interesting one, right? So, you know, you can uh, monitor a person's depression level, for example, very regularly with a digital product, but does the provider want to see that? Do they want the liability of knowing that? Um, can they do anything about it? So back to your point of actionable, yeah. right? It's like, what, what could that look like that would enhance visibility for in-person providers without entering that zone of like, well, that's a whole new extra thing I have to add, or, oh my gosh, I don't want to see that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think, um, I mean, and, and that goes back to the like whole, the adoption challenge, which in some ways, like I think uh, to your earlier initial framing of the question, like I think in some ways that is the biggest challenge right now uh, because uh, we've got to be presenting information to clinicians in a way that is encouraging and useful for them such that they can really, that they're going to be starting to implement digital therapeutics in their practice. And uh, so I think uh, this, the safety one, it, it, like you're right, is a great kind of case example where I think we're, there's going to have to be more contribution from the digital therapeutic itself where you look at like there are, there's great, you know, researchers, uh, you know, Matt Nock at Harvard, uh, other folks on like on really predicting suicide and uh, intervening effectively for suicide and 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 I have a feeling it's going to be it's going to be it's going to be you know uh, very different types of response and intervention coming out of research like like his 
that is not going to look like the kind of clunkier uh, uh, methods we've had in the past that I think, you know, everyone's kind of clinicians shy away from as well. Uh, so um, I, I, yeah, I do. And I, and I think it's, we're going to all have to really be focused on what the data says. We're like, uh, you know, what, like you think about the lesson, I think we all had a psychologist and mental health clinicians, I don't know, 15 years ago, where there was finally compelling data to say that asking questions about suicidality does not increase the risk of suicide. And so it allowed practitioners to feel comfortable asking those questions, right? Which then improved safety. But like until we started, you know, anyways, until we overcame that challenge, we like we, we weren't, you know, we were, we were sort of behind. So I think like, the, like those movements forward from research will help drive better, better care. So with, I know we kind of went down a rabbit hole with safety there, but you had a much larger topic in the beginning. <laughs> Is there anything we didn't touch on from your original point about kind of access and dissemination that you want to get to now as we wrap up? Well, yeah, I, I think like, you know, you really got me thinking about like adoption, you know, with, with how you framed that question. Cause I think maybe a couple of years ago, I would have said like reimbursement's the biggest challenge. Uh, and, and, or in a few years before that, I would have said regulation. And I sort of feel like those areas are actually coming along. And I think that, that, um, the health systems see and, you know, that like payers and health systems, I, I think see the value and providers see the value. Azure Therapeutics, but now we're faced with the problem of like ultimately care is driven by many, many, many individuals, like individual practitioners, and how do we kind of get to really scaled adoption? So that yeah, you know, I'm curious, like I don't know what your thoughts are there, but I, I think that's like in some ways the area that we need to be focusing on most next. Yeah, I think a lot about rural areas and places where, you know, as much as we would like to have digital products um, serve as an adjunct to in-person care, that there are places where there is no in-person care, many places, either due to lack of availability, right? There's a six-month waiting list um, or because you physically can't reach one. I just, you know, for my own example, right, I live an hour and a half outside Cleveland. If I want to access psychiatric care, I go to Cleveland Clinic, which is an hour and a half away. Um, when you think about like all of the logistics involved in that, and there are people more rural than I am, right? Um, so being able to, to get to a digital product that we feel safe enough or confident enough that it could support somebody a person really sees very infrequently, right, or sees remotely, not in person. Um, and if there were an emergency, could not go to the office. Um, and getting comfortable with those border conditions or understanding what we would need the technology to do so we could be comfortable, because otherwise, those folks just aren't getting care. And, uh, you know, I think it's easy to get stuck in this, yeah, but in a perfect world, we would have all of these things together. And it's like, well, uh, what do we do in the places where those things are not together? Um, what's, what's the bar that we would need to set? to get comfortable with that. I don't have the yeah, answer. Yeah, yeah, I think about it a lot. Point. Yeah. <laughs> no, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I know. And I think like there's this perception in some in some places, I think that, uh, or I should say worry that we could be lowering the bar for care mm -hmm. if we um, introduce interventions, uh, you know, sort of too early before uh, the... Uh, the efficacy is as good as in-person gold standard care, for example. And I think, first of all, like that, uh, uh, that question is debatable because you have to sort of think about like 
how good is in-person care on average? Not right. Not like when you, if you take the top, you know, 10 best clinicians in this condition area and, you know, they're in a specialty clinic and have done their research trial, but like what are, what's actually happening for people in practice? Cause that's the actual comparison point. But then, but then to your, um, it's your point, like what's, I, I think it's like thinking about what's the incremental value in a care system. If you add a digital therapeutic that expands access to people who the comparison is that they're getting no care, you know, or, the, um, or that they wouldn't seek care. Uh, and, and so you, like you, obviously you have to manage uh, risk. You have to manage uh, safety, which I, but I think that's doable. But then if you're thinking about it as, you know, like true step care, like low intensity care, that's going to, that when you add it into the existing care sim is care sim is going to lift everyone up and is going to, you know, is going to support, is going to be more care, better outcomes for a decent proportion of the population is going to actually result in probably better care for a more acute, severe proportion of the population as well, because providers will be freed up to focus on that segment. I mean, that's, that's really important, but it feels like that big picture sometimes is being lost. Uh, and uh, with a focus on, uh, I think some, some of the points, some of these details you're talking about were like, you know, what if like, you know, like a comparison is something that, that isn't a true comparison. Like what if this person like got gold standard, um, you know, in-person care, would that be better? It's like, well, that's just not what's going to happen for that person. Right. And I think that's, you know, I think we can we can get so caught up in it needs to be this way and that way and this way to be optimal that we lose the overall picture that that person might be completely unwilling to pursue in-person care ever. Right. So like if that person's going to get nothing or this, that's a very different proposition. And it's one I think DTX as a field is very uncomfortable with and needs to engage with despite that discomfort. Otherwise, you know, one of the biggest promises of digital products, which is reaching folks who would never go in person or who can't for logistical reasons, kind of gets lost in translation with the sort of, um, you know, I don't I don't want to leave optimal, but like in-person care also is not optimal. Like I just wrote a paper about this in obesity where it's just like the majority of people are like, I don't know, exercise. Like there's not really very sophisticated knowledge among GPs about how to treat obesity and they're the main people that do it. And so I think that's true in every field that there are specialists at, you know, care centers and there may be like 10 of those in the country and for everybody they can't reach those. We've got to decide at what point do we think that um, offering nothing is better than offering something because that's a very that's a very yeah. different bar. Yeah, I love that. I, and I think like I mean the other thing you just like hit for me, Keisha, is that I think it seems like it's not so widely acknowledged that specific conditions need specific treatments most in most cases, and so when there's this real significant loss when an individual with a specific condition, maybe, maybe it's obesity, uh, maybe it's a mental health condition, which like, you know, is what I focus on, maybe it's like panic disorder, let's say. And when those people get the care from a general practitioner that doesn't actually really know how to treat that condition well, which frankly, that's not, that's not what they're trained or uh, aiming to do, right? They're, they're, they're providing good care, but like, they're not that they're not a panic clinician or, you know, anxiety clinician. They're not a clinician focused on obesity or metabolic syndrome. Like when that, when that happens, those, unfortunately people aren't getting often getting the right level of support or care to actually recover from that condition. And so usually they maintain symptoms for a long time. People with panic disorder, they often go to the ER 
for their care because they think they're having a heart attack or something else. And, uh, and so like the, the, the net result of that is like, is all, is, is people really, um, becoming long-term chronic patients because they're not recovering. And so I just, yeah, I just wholly agree. I think that's another, um, reason that DTX has the potential to really lift up care because they can feed in these specialty treatments such that like providers who have more uh, general skill sets that are really that are really critical can be lever- can leverage like and so they can the provider can you know sort of extend what they're able to to do. Awesome insights, no surprises there. Thank you for joining us. This has been Jenna Carl, CMO at Big Health, and this is DTX Equals. Please join us next time.